are racist people still coming to football? Yes, absolutely. Do they withhold their views and not articulate them within the stands because they know that they will be rejected by fellow fans or they will get in trouble with the police or the clubs? Yes. So is that addressing racism in football? Well, it's addressing people articulating it, but it's not addressing what they do outside of the football stadium. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of talking to someone who is genuine and authentic in the way he approaches work. He is probably one of the well-respected voices and connected people, shall I say, in the sports industry. Pranav, filmmaker, consultant, someone who has not only dedicated his life to like bringing incredible stories to light the world of sport, but passion around racism and sport and changing that, doing a lot of work behind the scenes and changing that narrative. It's someone that I I just been waiting to actually have a conversation with. He's got multiple businesses he's created and founded, which we're gonna definitely lead into a lot more, such as the Football Blacklist is one of the ones that he does. His organization refreshed sports consultancy, worked with some amazing people like Yayature, Liv Cook, Janet Polassi. And he's, you'll have seen his films, like, from Refresh Films as well. So he's a man of, of many talents. He's also a very humble man. So <laughs> I've been interested to learn, like, how did my guest, Leon Maine, get to where he is and start to do what he does? Welcome, sir. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. Hey, my man. Thank you so much for the very kind introduction and invite on. Looking forward to, to sharing some thoughts with you. I know you're, you're right into sports. That's your, that's your thing. I'm curious, did you have aspirations as a youngster to play sports? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was that 11-year-old who would always have a ball in my hand, always be playing. At secondary school, I was, you know, for a time, the captain of the football team. I was playing in the basketball team running 200 metres track, I'd try every single sport going, I'd be the cricket captain. I was obsessed with sport, I loved it, it was a connector, I happened to be quite good at some sports, and I would try every sport, so I absolutely had aspirations to try and go as far as I could. At the same time, I had parents who were very grounded, both teachers, um, who were telling me, look, you know, this sport thing want you to try as much as you can, but just understand that it's really difficult to push on in that space. So education has to be primary concern. We want you to be very focused on your learning and pushing forward in that space. Something which I feel I managed to do as best possible. Real positive childhood in that respect. And yeah, sport was a big, big part of my life. Um, in terms of where I kind of got to um, as an athlete, shall we say, and I use that word uh, with caution. You might see me jogging around my local park in Walthamstow thinking that this guy cannot refer to himself as an athlete at all. <laughs> you know, uh, played in university football, enjoyed playing cricket, but never really got to a level where I could kind of talk of in any going terms. But I really enjoyed my relationship with sport. And I think sometimes people assess their relationships with sport in terms of how far you got along that pyramid. Did you play at the highest level, play semi-professional? Actually, I kind of have a different view in terms of what did sport give me in my life and how did it help me navigate this incredibly challenging world that we live in. It taught me about teamwork. It taught me about leadership. It brought me together with people that maybe I wouldn't have normally come together with. It built friendship groups. It gave me a relationship with my friends and family that is much closer than it would have been otherwise, I believe. So sport has given me so, so much. And I'm delighted and feel very blessed to be leading the life that I am as a result of my relationship with it. How did you adapt that way of thinking, that philosophy? Was that from when you were at uni and you decided to step into like journalism or has that been something that you've evolved with over the years recently? Oh, it's absolutely evolved and something that is probably that I've realised in recent years in many respects because I don't think I've necessarily 
know, have the maturity and the foresight and be able to step back and, and, and look at things with a, a wide lens to understand what sport has given me. I think there have been times in my life where, you know, I've yeah, had different relationships with, with sports. Certainly as a young person, I've enjoyed it. Uh, but I've been trying to push on to play as well as I can. I wanted to be the best player in the team. And when I was the best player in the team, I wanted to play for a better team to challenge myself. Actually, when I look back and I look at the journey that I've had with sport and the relationship I have with it now, I still play down in Brixton on a Wednesday night in a six-a-side league, and I take it very seriously. Actually, that's about my wellness. Um, it's about not having a phone in my hand and constantly looking at WhatsApp and emails and LinkedIn. That's the one time in my week where I actually genuinely switch off and I get space. And these are things I'm trying to get better at as a leader. You know, I'm always immersed in my work. When your work overlaps with your hobby, it can be a dangerous space. You find yourself constantly feeling like you're working all the time. And that isn't good for your mental health. I don't think it gives you space to be fresh in terms of how you approach meetings and emails and everything. So you have to be careful, I think. Um, or certainly I do in, in this space. So I certainly didn't realise it when I was younger. You know, coming up through your 20s, you know, there's there's a crazy energy, and enthusiasm. But in my case, I didn't really have the foresight. It's only when I got to late 20s, early 30s, that I think I started reflecting on sport and my relationship with it. At the moment, with two young children, their relationship with sport is starting maybe their relationship with sport is very different to mine. So I also have to take a step back and check myself constantly on that journey. As I'm finding on a Sunday morning when I'm telling my daughter to step up for offsides. Oh, man, that's it's one of the hardest ones. I'm not going to lie. When my, my son was playing football, early days, I used to be like, come on, best. And I remember I was like, wow, this is not helpful. I literally had to go and step way back from the line. I'm like, I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to observe. And after the game, I'll ask how it was we have that conversation. It is hard to do because you want to be like, what are you doing? Like, change this, move that, get this position in. But at the same time, you also want them to enjoy the game. That's it. And I'm so bad at it. I'm so, so bad at it. And I actually had a conversation with the England women's manager about this because I ended up incredible where you end up sometimes in life. So I was a guest of the FA chief executive for the England versus Ivory Coast men game. And I was actually sat between the England chief executive and the England women's manager who obviously went on to to win the Euros final and I was talking to her I'm sure she was very bored of this conversation by the way I was talking to her about my relationship as a father on the sideline with girls football I said to her that you know have you got any advice for me because I kind of I'm watching the game and I really want my daughter to do technical things in the game and understand the game in a certain way that maybe my parents weren't as vocal about or didn't give me the guidance in that I felt I would have been maybe a better player earlier if I'd have known. So, for example, when I'm talking my daughter through a game, she plays better. However, that is not the right thing to do. I just need to step back and just enjoy it for what it is. And I said, often I shout instructions onto the pitch. And, of course, I shouldn't be because that confuses things with her coach, who's wonderful, excellent at what she's doing, you know, so she can do those things and does do those things. But I just can't help myself. And do you know what she said? Sabrina turned around and she went, do you know what, Leon? Just let her play. Just let her play. They shouldn't worry about positions. She's 10 years old, you know. Just let her play. And I was just found it really difficult to hear that. But actually, this is coming from the woman who is at the very top of football for women, not just in this country, but Europe. She's won the Euros twice. So, yeah. Working on myself. <laughs> that's the theme of that relationship with sport that I have right now. I think that's also the beauty of, of parenting, where it forces you to reintroduces yourself to yourself in a way. The parts where you didn't know was there or laid dormant for years, your kids kind of bring it out to you as you start to go through different experiences with them. And it forces you to have that reflection piece of, hey, what am I going to do about this? Am I going to change? Or am I going to just carry on in the way that I might have been brought up and where I might have learned from my parents? And that's that, that key piece to growth that we we face as, as parents. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I feel incredibly blessed and grateful that um, my parents you know, showed care and love in the way that they did. And I guess I'm kind of looking at the gaps, things I 
in my way, but actually it's not about me. <laughs> it's about others. It's about my, my children. It's about, you know, that relationship. And, um, yeah, like I say, I think self-reflection is a great thing and self-awareness. It's not always as easy as it says in the self-help books or in the Twitter memes or whatever it might be, but, you know, we're all working on ourselves. How did you um, get into journalism from the love of sport and doing otherwise right university to journalism and going to work for like BBC and ITV? How did you get into that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really unconventional journey. As a young man, I you know, had aspirations, of course, to try and become a professional footballer. In my mind, I just thought I was, I was a really good player, particularly when I was very, very young. So I thought, love to be a footballer. I've got a bit here. There's something that I think I can build on. But ultimately, I you know, wasn't good enough as a young person. It's hard to kind of come to terms with that. But interestingly, I don't know what it is within me, but I kind of didn't find it as hard in the same way. I just kind of felt because I was doing well in education that actually I had other options and I was kind of fine with that. You know, kind of, I wanted the dream, but had other things that I could potentially pursue. So I'm grateful to my parents for instilling that in me um, in terms of making me feel that I could do other things. However, the thing that I really, really wanted to do um, if I couldn't be a footballer was to be involved in it in some way. And um, I thought that could potentially be as a journalist or presenter, but I didn't see any black people to follow or to connect with. So I felt like I could do something interesting, but I'm not quite sure I'll be able to kind of push on in that career and also what are the pathways how, how do you become a sports journalist how do you become a sports presenter and there was no information there was no connector and the big thing for me was I just didn't see anyone who I connected with doing that job you know the black people that I did see who I think are fantastic people like Garth Crooks you know but Garth Crooks have played hundreds of football games at the highest level you know it's incredible that he could have a transition into becoming a top athlete into a top broadcaster but I thought, well, if I'm not going to be a top athlete, then it doesn't quite connect. So anyway, I, I kind of like parked this aspiration and I picked it up um, again once I'd been working for the Kick Racism Out football campaign, which I joined when I left university. And I contacted with people like the sports journalist Darren Lewis, sports journalist uh, Rodney Hines, The Voice. And I, I was like, well, these guys didn't play football professionally and they're in the industry. So actually, maybe there is an opportunity. I had some links and then I got invited to the BBC to apply for a job and the rest kind of took care of itself. Um, and once I was in, you know, it was Christmas and birthday wrapped into one. I just couldn't believe my luck. I was in the BBC, this big broadcast, uh, match of the day, football focus, space coverage. It was a dream. Do you know, you know, it's, it's not often you can say I bounce out of bed, bounce into work bounce home and can't wait to go in tomorrow. And that, that actually was my reality. My reality working at the Kick It Out campaign as an anti-racism campaigner in football. Um, and it was my reality as, as a, a, a journalist or an aspiring journalist. It was an entry job that I first got in. So I felt really blessed. And once I was in, you know, they, they wouldn't let me broadcast, clearly, because I wasn't experienced enough. They wouldn't let me write for the website because I hadn't had a great deal of experience doing it. So I started writing for The Voice newspaper, thanks to Rodney Hyde. And because I had some good links with people like Rio Ferdinand, Michael Richards, etc., I was able to do some really cool pieces that my contemporaries, the people I was working with, who were at a much higher level than me, didn't have that access. So my community, because it was mainly through my community I was connecting with black athletes, enabled me to have access to high-profile athletes at a time when really in my career I shouldn't have so because of that, that propelled me in my career. It really pushed me ahead of the queue because I was able to get to things that other journalists weren't. And I really kind of had a, a period of sustained success that really helped me in my career. And yeah, that, that, that's kind of where things kind of really began to take off. How do you build those kind of networks and develop those kind of relationships because it can't, I'm sure it must have felt daunting sometimes. I mean, reaching out, having those kind of conversations, especially in a field in the area, like I said, there was lack of representation already, but you managed to, one, find 
the black people who worked in those fields, but not just find them, but build relationships where they gave you opportunities. And then you you built on that with the likes of real friend that you just mentioned. How did you do that? Because that's a skill. Do you know what? I think everything about my identity at that time, and also, you know, this landscape of underrepresentation kind of worked massively in my favor. I believe I was in the right place at the right time. And I had enough emotional intelligence and self-awareness to do things and be myself in a way that was, I don't know, I don't want to say attractive to others, but was just kind of like a space of their normality within a space of a lack of diversity and a lack of relatable figures. So, for example, when I would be at a sport event in a media area, Rodney Hines and Darren Lewis weren't there. I would be the only black person for sure. Um, but yet we'd be covering a sport where a number of the athletes, like the majority of times, would be black. So therefore, they're walking through a mix zone and there I am with a microphone or a dictaphone. And they're like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Equally, very few kind of black agents, etc. I was part of that community. so. You know, I had a connection with them and I kind of feel that they were willing to help me uh, and to connect with me because they kind of felt a sense of community. And that, I I believe, kind of helped to my advantage. And I think they saw that their, their clients would connect with me in a different way. The things I was interested in, you know, would connect with the athletes and did connect with the athletes. And, you know, I, I would be... You know, this is late 20s, early 30s. I'd be in nightclubs and I'd see them and I wouldn't ask them about what they're doing at work, what's going on with football. I'd just talk about music maybe or whatever it would be within that space because I played, you know, I say I played it the right way. It didn't feel like I was being strategic. It just felt like I was just kind of being a normal guy saying not a workspace to so just calm down. And I think people, particularly younger people, can misread things in that they can develop a relationship that you know doesn't work in in the right way so i kind of feel that you know my my community the people around me the good habits that they had rubbed off on me and i was able to kind of build relationships that others weren't the key word is relationships and you know i believed i was a relatable figure in a world of white men who were older in gray suits who only wanted to speak to these guys about how they played a football match or the controversial thing that had happened in their game or career. I think for me, it sounds very much, you saw the human, other people saw the football player. And that's kind of where you get that. And I've talked about the story of the authenticity, but it's, it was what makes a difference. You don't want just to be spoken to for the thing that you are known for, because we're so multifaceted and you've been able to react and reach out to the human person you're naturally going to stand out anyway, as well as the fact that you're black and all of them, so many different things like that. But that is very, very different. Spot on. And 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 to me, you know, I, I've been in situations where I'd be with a, a media pack or a media group and the sports person would walk into a room and everyone would run and swamp around them. And actually, I, I was in a privileged position where I was mainly doing feature reporting, so I could kind of hold back. I wasn't there for a news line, for one line to sell a product or to lead a story. And so I'd hold back and I'd normally kind of just start talking to the entourage of the said athlete. And that can be cousin, brother, best friend, whoever it would be. And we just talk about life and stuff and we connect. And actually by forming those bonds with the people around the athlete, you know, I guess they would go and say that guy was actually all right. It wasn't, again, this strategic kind of cold way of trying to find a way into an athlete. It was just seeing people as human beings. And I think that helped me massively at the time as well, because there's a lot of nervousness around journalists. And, you know, even when I do interviews occasionally, I kind of like go and worry a little bit about how I'm going to be represented. Like, is half the quote going to be cut up? So I'm actually not given the full context of what I'm trying to say. And it's projected in a way that actually doesn't project me to the world in the way that I would like to be and I believe is a true reflection of myself. So when people go into those situations to get something from them that's kind of anchored in truth and honesty and realness, you know, there's got to be a trust and to form that trust in that environment is really difficult. So, you know, this is about we're all people and I think 
the principles of where I've had success, you know, can be applied right through whatever business you're involved in. I know certainly from my perspective, if I connect with somebody and I trust somebody and I value somebody, I often look for a reason to work with them. And I believe that I've certainly benefited from that over the years in the sports industry. I believe that people have come to me because they feel um, like there's connection. And I'm really grateful to those people for that. You're finally in the career that you wanted. You're starting to live that dream and make inroads. And at the same time, you decided to start something which at that point in time was major, which is the, the football blacklist. What was the your driver at that point in time? And did you think it would be what it has become when you started it? Yeah. No, do you know what? It's, it's interesting because, I mean, look, you know, there was no kind of big strategy behind the football blacklist when we started it. Essentially, it was Rodney Hines from The Voice newspaper and myself I'd gone to him and said, look, you know, I've got an idea that's kind of based around the concept of the Times Rich List, where we kind of read who these incredibly powerful and rich people are. Everyone kind of enjoys it. I say everyone, I enjoy it. Lots of people enjoy, oh my God, this person's doing this. And it's a point of discussion. I'm like, well, where is this for the black community? Obviously, I know that the power list exists now, but this is around about the time when that was just beginning to start as well. And I just thought, well, I'm in the football industry and I see the very few black people that there are but when i go to see my friends in the community when i go and speak to young people they have no idea who these people are and actually is there something in shining a light on these people as a vehicle to show the next generation a pathway that i didn't have for the sports media when i was younger so we make that that pathway visible make these things more achievable to, un- to help to address underrepresentation in the football industry. And for context, at the moment, 42% of the Premier League, so 42% of players in the Premier League are from black communities. So that's 42%. We have one black board member across 20 club boards. That's Deji Davis, who works at JP Morgan, very successful, and a very good friend of mine. We played football when we were younger, grew up in North London together. He's the one black board member at Brentford Football Club Premier League, which is incredible when you look at that 42%. 42% of the assets that drive money in football are black, yet we only have one black board member, right? But one black owner of a club at Burton Albion, Ben Robinson, lovely, lovely man, took that club from, I don't know, the ninth tier of English football all the way up to the championship at one point, uh, kind of in League One at the moment. He took over that club in 19. 19- Eighty-seven, I believe. It might be a couple of years out there, so forgive me if you're listening. Ben. But one black owner across all 92 professional football clubs in this country. So that disparity, we, we have to have a way of addressing that. We have to have a way of talking about that. And also at the same time, we have to have a way of stimulating and educating and showing our black communities how it, and to get into the game. And for me, the, the football blacklist, just as a simple list, helped to start a conversation around that. Football really embraced the football blacklist because it was a positive thing. It's a celebratory thing. So we're talking about a few black people that work within the clubs and the industry. So it was embraced by the industry. And we've done some great things. The Premier League have been a long-term uh, sponsor of the celebration event that we do, bringing like you know hundreds of black people in the football industry together, which is great. Um, the FA were very, very involved at the beginning of the football blacklist and are now, again, very involved in it. We're having international conversations about what we could do with other sports leagues, which is really exciting. And, you know, it's, it's all about addressing this lack of representation and collaborating with the sports bodies, in this case football, to be able to build things out. So did I think I would be having conversations with the biggest sports leagues in the world when we put together this list in the Voice newspaper? No, I did not. Did I hope we would? Absolutely. I didn't believe it. And now it's a reality. You know, there's so much potential for it. And the great thing is, this is all about positivity, but in the middle of a real mess of underrepresentation. So it's a positive vehicle to help in some way to activate conversations and address this big, complex 
problem that we need to address um, so we don't feel uncomfortable in, this, in these industries. We've also been very intentional of not just showcasing footballers who are out front. You've intentionally showcased people behind the scenes. Why did you think that was super important to do? Oh, I mean, it was super important to showcase those people who weren't the footballers or weren't the, you know, people in front of camera, if you like, in the football media. Um, because, you know, that makes up a very small percentage of where the opportunities actually lie for many people in the community. So if you want to be a lawyer in football, you need to see some, some black lawyers, I believe, if you're in the black community. You don't need to. I think it's very helpful to see them. If you want to be an agent, it's helpful to see black agents. And also those people aren't getting kind of recognition within the wider kind of football community, in my view. Some are, but many aren't. So we need to say thank you to those people for the excellence that they have in their industry. Um, and we also need to make sure that the black woman from Walthamstow, let's say, because that's where I'm kind of based, can look at the blacklist and see a black female who's smashing it as a lawyer and go, do you know what? I love football. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer in football because I love football. That is really, really important. And previously, my experience growing up in the 90s, I love football. I saw lots of black athletes. Outside of that, I saw black athletes on television with microphones in their hands. That just wasn't something I could connect with. You know, I could connect with, oh, right, okay, I could become a footballer. But once that dream's dead at 15, 14, 16, 21, 25, where does that leave me? My relationship with football is that I can only go as a fan on a match day. And you know, that's, that's not right. I want somebody trying to become a doctor who's a crazy Liverpool fan. And I want them to go, do you know what? My dream is actually to be the doctor of the Liverpool football club. And that is where I'm going to push to make sure I get to that place. Because I love football. I love Liverpool football club. I love the fact that I'm a doctor. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look after those players. That should be a reality uh, where people can see a pathway and people can feel like they're welcome. Feel like this is an industry that's going to welcome me and embrace me. For me, that helps to address underrepresentation, increase excellence in the football industry, importantly, and have a more positive kind of like space full stop for us all. It's quite enriching to actually hear this perspective. I mean, we talk a lot around representation, we talk a lot around the fact that there's so much to do in the industry outside of the actual sport that's being played. Because, like you said, there's, there's lawyers, there's the doctors, there's um, even people who are, like ourselves, who are actually bridging the contracts and bringing people together. There's scouts. There's so much more that you can still nurture your love and do that people don't necessarily think about. And the reason they don't think about it is because they don't hear enough about it, despite the, the sound bites you can hear. So you're, like, Football Black is probably the first space that I've seen that really, really highlighted ways. Like, actually, here's a list of people who you never have heard of, but you can probably get to know and read their story and follow their journey. You can be like, it actually does exist. And the next level, I guess, you took that to, which I actually found quite interesting is you started something new for Blacklist that's going. A year later, you started DCOM, Black Collective of Media and Sports. I'm like, <laughs> do you ever just slow down for a minute and enjoy or even nurture what you're doing and you start something else? Like... Why Why so quickly? Do, do you know what it was? I'd left the Kick It Out campaign. A job out of university, you're working in football and you're working to challenge racism and discrimination. So it's kind of purposeful. It's the area you're passionate about. You know, that's real wholesome work. I felt so lucky to be at that campaign. And then I stepped out of that campaign, but the campaigner never leaves you. You don't suddenly say, right, I'm a journalist now. So boom, that's it. Done. Popped. That was a great piece of my life. Some people might do that, but for me, it was never an option. So I had this burning thing in me where I was like, well, now I'm away from the campaign. I can actually decide what I campaign on as an individual. So that felt really empowering. And I was like, do you know what? I'm not an LGBT activist. It's just, it's not my space. I support those activists. I support what they're campaigning for, but I'm not an expert there. So that's not the area I'm going to campaign in. I'm not a campaigner on the British Asian community, but the black community, that's the community that I'm anchored in and rooted in and part of. So I'm going to look at areas in this space. 
I'm passionate about. I'm going to do something. I'm not going to go and talk about it. I'm going to do something. That was my driver. So the football blacklist, that was a big thing for me. And I didn't realize it was going to come as big as it, as it is now. No chance. I thought, look, as a journalist, I'll write a list every year. That, that's calm, right? That's all good. But with the Black Collective of Media and Sport, I walked into the BBC. And as welcoming as my colleagues were, and it was brilliant to be there, you know, the fact that it's called White City, it's almost like, right, they, they name it this for a reason. And I'm walking into White City, and it's like I'm, like, you know, my, my father's from Worcestershire. It's like I've walked into Worcestershire here. Like I'm sort of like trying to say hello to the black person on the other side of the room because I'm just excited to see someone else who's from my community. And the few black people that were in the building, there was a bit of a whispering culture in the corridors. Kind of like, what are you saying? You, you're good? Yeah, 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 I'm good. Yeah, that's not very diverse. Here. No, no, it's not. And then a white colleague would come, yeah, yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, okay. So it, this whispering culture, I really struggled with as a campaigner because it was kind of like, I get it. I hated it because it was like, why do we have this whispering culture? This, you know, clearly people are scared of what it means to have a conversation out loud around diversity, around the fact that, you know, maybe some people clearly have a bit of a emotion, shall we say, towards Serena Williams and might talk about Serena Williams on the shop floor in a way that we have a, a problem with. You know, why is it Serena's a problematic person? We don't see her as that. We see her as kind of leader who we love. And why is there a discussion about, oh, yeah, but it's not fair because look at the way she's built. I'm like, well, hang on, where, where are we going with this? So we kind of like going to talk about how certain white people are kind of like physically stronger or different or whatever it is. We don't do that, do we? We just talk about their excellence. So why has it become a conversation about physicality in this space and not about skill and ability? So the fact that we were having these kind of discussions as whispering a whispering culture, as I would describe it, it wasn't good enough for me. So I went and knocked on some doors of senior people and said, we've got the London 2012 Games coming up. How are we going to be reflecting on screen in terms of diversity? How are we going to be reflecting the diversity of the country and of London within our editorial decisions and what we're doing and how we sound and how we feel and what stories we cover? Instead of just saying, this is the problem, we'll walk out the room, I said, this is the problem and I want to be part of the solution. I'm going to come up with some solutions and I'd love to work with you on it. And actually, there were leaders who were open and receptive to that. And then the next stage was just bringing together these incredible people who were within the building and within the industry, because it wasn't a BBC problem, it was an industry problem. And I just, I was the person who just called the meetings. That's kind of how I became the leader. I was just like, right, we're meeting here at this time. I'm going to do an introduction. I'm going to get a senior person from the industry to come and speak to us. And then we kind of started building it out. I mean, BCOMs is many, many people. I get the credit because I called the meetings ultimately and I wrote the emails and I went and did the meetings and all of those things. But it was a real collective of people. At first, it's kind of very, very difficult because we're building something. But I kind of rode the waves. We all did as black sports journalists of that frustration of having absolutely no resource, lots of ideas nobody having time to really kind of get things done because we're looking after our families and trying to progress in our careers. But we got things done somehow. And I guess I was one of the leaders within that and have led VCOMs to a place now alongside other incredible people. Drew Christie, Jeanette Crutchie has been very involved, and Hugh Wozencroft, you know, these brilliant, brilliant people. To get it to a place now where it's kind of industry recognised, helping lots and lots of young people, as well as kind of, consulting with the industry to help them be as good as they can be and eventually be good in this space to be able to drive their work forward in a different way. Something you said in there where it's like, there's a problem, but I also want to be a part of the solution and here's what I'm going to do to do something. I think a lot of times it's quite easy to be like, there's a problem, I need someone else to do something about it and you kind of step away. But like you said, that activist part of you is still alive and burning you're like, nope, I'm going, to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to see what can happen. And what's been built with that, again, another remarkable organization, which has been really, really inspiring. Thank you. And, and look, you know, it's, it all comes from a, a sense of why is no one doing this? Like there's a frustration. If, if someone's doing it, I'm the first to go, they're doing it, support what they're doing. If they want the support, like support what someone else is doing. Don't try and build something else if somebody else is, is kind of doing it. But there was a space that was completely empty and open. And I just thought, it feels like a good idea and it feels like 
we should be doing something here. Okay, if, it, if it's down to me to write the emails and do the meetings and whatever, I can do that. And I was fortunate that in the time, that time in my life, um, I didn't have children at that point, you know, and everyone else, I say everyone else, but that wouldn't sound bad. And lots of people were watching box sets. I can't tell you one box set I ever watched. And when people would say box sets, I was like, what? What box set? I w- people watching box sets, I was building stuff. I, I wasn't that guy in his 20s who would be sat watching box sets. And maybe I should have been. Maybe I'd be a bit more relaxed. <laughs> and not be have as many grey hairs on my head, but I would spend the time people were watching box sets in the evening, sat in front of my computer writing up like strategies, writing emails to people, trying to do things. And I'm and look, that's not criticism of anyone who's watching box sets, by the way. It's just I had a different way of using my time. I was using my time to try and shift things on, and I enjoyed it. I'm not asking anyone to feel sorry for me or go, "Wow, isn't he a great guy." I enjoyed it. I super, super enjoyed myself building something within my community, connecting with people, problem solving. For me, it was such a privilege to be able to do that. And now to be at a point where, you know, these things are internationally recognized and there are people being paid a wage to be consultants for different elements of the football blacklist and BCOMs, that's something I can one day walk away from all of this and just be kind of content. I did something. I contributed to something positive. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. I want to hear the difficulty and the frustration of building two massive things like that. And what was that? <laughs> what was that like? No, I mean, look, you know, I have to give credit to my wife, really, my, my girlfriend at the time, at the beginning of all of this, who actually developed a very successful campaign initiative movement, whatever you want to call it, called Women in Football. She founded Women in Football, which is very big right now, uh, at the same time that I was developing VCOMs and Football Blacklist. It was really interesting looking at the parallels in terms of the experiences there. Because while she was building Women in Football, you know, you could see the sponsorship, the community, everything growing around it. And I had a frustration saying, well, the things that I've got called Blacklist and football and uh, Blacklist and media and sport were not getting the same love and appreciation from the mainstream. They were from the community, don't get me wrong, but from the mainstream, uh-uh. The feedback confidentially I was getting from many corporates at the time was, I think you could just call it diversity something, because if you call it black, then that means we might have the British Asian community, we might have the Jewish community, we might have so many different people coming knocking on our doors, and you know, we kind of just want to keep it simple. And I was just like, well, no, (laughs) frankly, these are black led things. They are proudly black led and they are focused on the black community at that time. I mean, football blacklist is still black community, black led to media and sport, black led organization, although we work on wider diversity now, but it's black led. It's from a black lens, black perspective. And why can't a black led organization work on improving the diversity of all underrepresented groups? I don't see why that can't happen and I'm glad that the industry respects us and works with us on lots of different areas of diversity. But there were there were huge frustrations. But do you know what? The one thing that helped me get beyond the frustrations about the lack of resource, the millions of coffees I'd be giving free consultations to massive businesses where they turn around and say, I haven't got any money to contribute to this, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing that kept me going is this thought of, do you know what? If you don't give me no money, I'm still going to do it because I'm me. So I control my time. I control what I'm doing. So it's not going to be reliant on what you're doing. And it's funny because I speak to strategists and people who go, right, Leon, you should be doing all these things. You should be concentrating on one or two things. I'm like, look, I totally understand. And I understand that's how it should work in the real world. But for me, I've got to keep these things going. Otherwise, they disappear. And I really believe in the opportunity. And I think at some stage, I'll be able to step away from things and not have to do everything because they'll grow to the point where other people want to get involved. And that's how it's played out. But I'm in control, was my feeling. 
like coming up. I was just like, do you know what? Big bank, big commercial entity. You're saying you don't want to give me the money. I'm still going to get 50 people together next week. I'm still going to spend time on the phone to young black and Asian men and women about how we can help to put them together with people within our community to help their progression. I'm still going to ask difficult questions if it opportunities to, to kind of put some pressure on so that this diversity doesn't fall off the map. I'm still going to go and speak to politicians about what they should be doing to help us as a black community in this particular area. You can't control that. That's for me to control. So that's the one thing that kept me going through the difficult time. It was this sense of, you don't control this, I control this, and our community controls this. And then, of course, when we got to the Black Lives Matter moment, my phone's blowing up. In fact, not to be fair, before that, Raheem Sterling, his Instagram posts about the treatment of black young players in the media had my phone blowing up. And that was 2018, 2017. So that began the interest in BCOMs, in my view. We were doing other things and I was self-funding it because of my success in my consultancy work. I was just saying, I don't need your money. I'm going to use my money. And I'm going to put it into BCOMs and I'm going to put it into the blacklist because I can. I can control it now. I'm having commercial success here. So I'm going to make these things grow, keep them going to the point that they need to be. And Raheem Sterling's post came along, Black Lives Matter comes along, and then suddenly people are contacting me. And I'm getting emails from people that I was emailing lots and they were never getting back to me. And I was not being bitter about that. I was just fine we're at we're where we need to be maybe five six seven years later but we're here so the tough times have been particularly tough i've had the personal support of my wife along the way which i couldn't have done it without i've had the support of my community we've worked collaboratively and i've been in a real privileged position where commercially i've been able to fund things myself and be able to say you don't want to do it fine but i'm going to go in my own pocket and i'm going to do this because i believe in it I'm curious, where did you invite your wife meet? Because to be building something similar around the same time, I was like, what? Like, that's, all, that's, all, that's unheard of. Because <laughs> we're in, this, in similar kind of friendship circles is the easiest way to describe it. So we're in similar circles in our kind of early 20s. We grew up in a similar area as teenagers, funny enough. So we first met when we were 14, or, although we weren't kind of friends or together at that point. But Later on, we kind of got together in our kind of mid-twenties. Both had real strong convictions to make change in our industry because she's a sports journalist as well, by profession. And I think we both supported each other and that was a really important part of the journey. And this sense of it's getting done. It's going to get done with them or without them, but it's getting done. You've been quite successful in both your consultancy work and in filmmaking of those two areas which one do you enjoy the most i'm curious oh geez i get i get asked this a lot and i don't really have an answer because like the life filmmaker like with the films that i've made and been involved in i've walked out of three or four times people don't know that but i've just got frustrated because oh, this is not being done and then you kind of like i'm that's it i'm done with this can't deal with this. I've got an executive who's not kind of understanding what I'm trying to say or do. And this kind of real emotion within me kind of like musters up. I don't know if it's my roots. Kind of, I've got Jamaican and Irish roots. So I guess the stereotype would tell you that, you know, the blood levels go high quickly. So I've, I've kind of erupt and kind of want to walk, walk out. But it's, it's because I care so much, you know, about things like that. And I want every detail to be right. And I think being out in Jamaica and filming the Jamaica that you want to project to the world is a blessing. You know, like um, working with Stephen Lyle on Usain Bolt film that we did with Michael Johnson. You know, we sat down and he said, well, what kind of film do you want to make? And I was like, I don't want a shot of a single beach on Jamaica in this film. Because when I go back to Jamaica all the time, yes, we've got beautiful beaches. Yes, that's the thing that I want to show them, that I'm proud the world sees. But actually, Jamaica that I enjoy and I love and I connect with is the hills and the mountains and the families and the food. And I want them to smell it. I want them to feel the people. I want um, people to be speaking patois without loads of subtitles all over it. I want to be challenging. I want people to experience the Jamaica that I love and know that I don't feel from television because I feel white filmmakers at that time are going out there and going straight to the beach because
because that's the thing they connect with. It's like my lens is different. I want to go to the hills. Stephen is of Jamaican heritage as well. So we just had the coolest conversation about this. Go out and make this kind of beautiful thing come to life. And that's why you feel so passionate about it. But it is very much like big highs and big lows. But eventually you get to the right place with your film. And going through that process, seeing it go out on national television, BBC One, Two, Three, for the first documentary I made, which is the only sports documentary that's been on BBC One, Two, and Three that I'm aware of. You know, that high is just crazy. You know? But then there's equally working with clients and helping to them achieve, helping them grow and seeing the impact they make, seeing the impact it has on them as a person and completing a big deal after months and months of negotiations and trying to get the deliverables right. And, you know, like I, I buzz off all of it and I love the diversity of the work that I'm doing, but I get to be involved in all those different areas. So it's almost impossible to say which one I enjoy more because they're such different experiences, but they give me so much at the same time. I really love the diversity that I've had so far in my career. It's special. A lot of people don't get to have that because, you know, even though they might be earning big, big money, they're, they're turning up to do one job, right? Or some people aren't fortunate enough to be on big, big wages, and they're turning up to do one job for the day, and there'll be weeks and months where they don't love that one thing that they do. There'll be, mixed, there'll be weeks and months where they do love that one thing that they do. But for me, I've kind of got this opportunity to work across so many different areas that my brain's always being stimulated with different challenges and different things, different problems. And You know, I, I tell the guys in my team, like, when we've got problems that we've got to solve, I'm like, well, why else are we involved? <laughs> you know, if, if it was just a matter of everything kind of being easy um, and not having challenges, then we wouldn't be involved, frankly. So, sorry, I've dodged your question slightly. To be honest, I didn't expect you to say one or the other one because I can see when someone is, like I said, we're multifaceted. And it's for you, I think it sounds very much around you just nurturing a different, you're feeding your curiosity in different areas. And they are all different parts of your identity. You're not one. So it's not a surprise that you love doing both. <laughs> I mean, I just feel very, very fortunate. Someone upstairs looking over all of us. What's your views on race them in football now from when you start out at kick out to get out to now and obviously like I said if I doubt Black Lives Matter you've had Raheem Sterling different things happen in the last couple of years what's your views now around the progress well I mean I think when I started out working in this area in 2001 you know we were still talking about you know racism and problems from the terraces um, not so much in England in the kind of mass mainstream way so not like monkey chance but still, I'd go to football and I'd still hear abuse um, in pockets. Now, I don't hear that so much in those pockets. And it might be because I'm going to mainly Premier League games and I'm not going to games lower down the pyramid. So I don't want to forward a view that we've kind of tackled it. I think we've suppressed a lot of racism in the stands. What I mean by that is, uh, are racist people still coming to football? Yes, absolutely. Do they withhold their views and not articulate them within the stands because they know that they will be rejected by fellow fans or they will get in trouble with the police or the clubs. Yes. So is that addressing racism in football? Well, it's addressing people articulating it, but it's not addressing what they do outside of the football stadium, whether that's not giving jobs to black and Asian people or having you know relationships where they're discriminatory um, to people in the street in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we need to be careful with what we're suggesting is or celebrating what, what is progress, first of all. For me, you know, the work that I've been involved in has always been around, well, why have we got this situation where we have so many black athletes, but we have so few black managers, we have so few black people working in lots of different areas of the game. Isn't that racism? Isn't that this kind of covert racism as we used back in the day was the terminology we would use, overt and covert racism. We've got such underrepresentation in the game. I think that's where we still have huge, huge, huge challenges and problems. And when I talk about the game as well, I must kind of say I'm talking from the lens of the male game, because in the women's game, we still have you know, representation of black females. So it's important to acknowledge that within a conversation. So how do we change the makeup of the leadership teams 
the boards of professional football clubs? Um, or are we saying that we're kind of okay with the situation as it is because we've got some wealthy black footballers and more black people coming to football games than we did previously and we celebrate black culture, whatever that is, whatever that turns up as, through the kind of content that we see around football at the moment and through the digital space. For me, my kind of focus is where do we see representation and who manages the power and the money? So if I'm saying 42% of Premier League players are black and we've only got one boardroom member across 20 clubs, then actually what we're saying is we're contributing more than a billion pounds as a black community to the football industry. And that's a baseline kind of figures much higher than that when you look at commercial, etc. And we've got one person <laughs> crazy. And, and, and look, you know, the FA got a black board member who is a former player in Joby McKenna. So that is a significant step forward in terms of having representation in that space. And that's because we've got some intentional leaders who are looking at we need to address these things and doing things uh, to make football better, to making their organisations more relevant. But we need to see more of that. We need to see more Brentfords. We need to see more leadership like they do um, in areas like the FA. We need to push this forward. Otherwise, we'll just find ourselves in 10 years' time talking about really bad that we've got one black board member. We can't have that conversation. And when people say to me, yeah, but Leon, if you look down at the football industry, there's not that many senior black people. I'm like, well, if you're looking for a white person to join your board, also a white person, if you're looking for anybody to join your board, which is 99% of the time a white person who's put there, you just look at who is within football. Because actually the people I see being appointed onto football boards, etc., are from business, they're from the city, they're top lawyers, etc. So why aren't you looking there for black people? And by the way, like when you're doing recruitment, say, you know, how we improve the lead, when you're recruiting for the next leaders in any industry, many people will go to Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, Bristol, etc., Redbrick Universities. But how many times have you put initiatives like that together in football where you're kind of looking for black people coming from Oxford, Cambridge, etc., etc.? And that's not me necessarily saying those are the best people, but that would be a very obvious first step if you were looking to find the next black leaders to come into the football industry. But no one's ever thought of that. In fact, one very senior leader told me when I suggested something along those lines, well, that would be cheating. I was like... And ignorance. <laughs> how is that cheating? I don't, I don't expect everyone to agree with that way forward as a strategy, by the way, but it would be a very easy strategy to follow because you're saying the brightest people in the country for you come from those institutions because that's your kind of that's who you're employing. So why don't you look at the black people there, go into the second year, find the football people, target them and say, we're going to get you on a kind of a pathway to be running our clubs, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not happening. And I think that comes down to, at the moment, having lots of people who just do not see black people in any other way apart from athletes and entertainers. And I think it, it's, it, it, it sounds cold and it sounds direct, but sadly, that's how I see it. And if you even you know, have a deeper dive into that, if you look at where the money is spent around the black community, it's spent on identifying black athletes. So football clubs will spend money looking at where black athletes can come and become athletes within their football clubs. And also, you know, it's spent on how can we stop black communities getting into knife crime and getting into trouble in inner cities. So actually, when you break that down, that's quite deep. It's saying, as organisations, you're prepared to spend money on black people as athletes. You're prepared to spend money on black people as people who potentially find themselves in problems with knife crime, etc., etc., things we see on the news constantly. How much money do you spend on developing black leaders, given that you have such a challenge? Zero. But what does that tell us about your relationship with these communities? It tells you how you see us. And that, for me, I think is powerful and where we need to take a step back and where the conversations need to be with many in the football industry and it's a difficult conversation because it can feel very personal but unless we have those kind of conversations i do fear that we're not really going to move forward in the way that we need to live your quotes that's the name of the newsletter that you need to subscribe to go on www.everydayleadership.co.uk subscribe to live your quotes 
It's a bi-weekly newsletter that comes out with a quote with some information on how I'm looking at that quote, how that relates to my life to make it more real and authentic and come alive for you. As well as bits and pieces of maybe books I'm reading, there might be some other content I'm tapping into and some bits and pieces around the podcast. It's a nice, short, succinct newsletter, which I know you're gonna enjoy. But to enjoy it, you need to subscribe to it. So again, if you go to the podcast website, www.everydayleadershippodcast.co.uk, you'll be able to get access to leave your quote newsletter. Now let's get back into the episode. How do you define leadership? I mean, I think leadership is something that you given or earn or take and it's a responsibility ultimately it's anchored in a responsibility to develop move and make things happen for me i look at the people who have leadership positions at the moment within football who develop the game positively be that financially be that the long-term interests of the game be that the impact that is had by a football club or football institution, be that whatever your your space that you're leading in, it's like you're assessed by impact. So what impact can you drive as a leader? And that does not mean you do things for yourself. It means as a leader, I think the leaders that impress me are the, the leaders who go, I'm not good at this. But I think there's an expectation in the old world that leaders are meant to be good at absolutely everything. But I think the leaders that impressed me are the leaders that go, you know what, I have not got the lived experience of a black man or woman in the UK, but I know this is an important part of the work I'm doing in the industry I'm in and the business I'm working within. So I need to go and find this expertise to have within my organisation to help guide me, lead me, to make the best decisions as the person who has ultimate responsibility and accountability. And I don't think that happens anywhere near enough. I think people basically go, my experience of the world is this. I don't fully understand this, but my personal view is this isn't as important. So therefore, this won't get as much attention as all of this other stuff. And as a result, it's just left there. And as a result, I don't understand why this will enhance my business. So I don't believe in it. So I'm not going to invest in it. Whereas I think the good leaders go, you know what? I understand the business I'm in, I understand where my capabilities are, I understand where my strengths are, and I'm going to make sure the areas where I don't have those strengths or experience, I'm going to get some serious expertise, and I'm going to pay for it, because I would pay for it in other areas. Let me tell you this, if someone does not have any expertise in the digital space of a business, they're not going to go to their friend who is good at digital stuff and just ask them for a beer every now and then to help explain some stuff so they can kind of understand it and go back to their business. They're going to pay significant money to make sure that they have the expertise, understanding to make the right decision. When it comes to diversity, it's kind of like a charity box that sits at the end of a desk that people shake every October to say, right, we're doing this this month. I want everyone to get heavily involved. And it doesn't sit as, as within, you know, the important KPIs within the business or I'm sorry, I've kind of extended out from your what is a leader, but I'm trying to nail my experience of good leadership and bad leadership where people don't see it in themselves. And that has to change. You know, I think that's got to come from leadership to make accelerated change. And that's not to, I mean, look, you know, I've, I've talked about BCOMs and me not feeling there was leadership there. So I had to become a leader. It was like not a, not a choice. Well, it was a choice, but. I didn't feel like I had a choice. It just had to be done if I wanted to see any progress because otherwise I'd be waiting for everyone else to wake up and I'll be done. I guess my last question to you then be, what's next for you? Criticism that I've had or I perceive as criticism is that I'm doing too much. You know, speaking really kind of open. I'm doing too much, I'm spread too thin, I'm trying to do a million things, I'm trying to change the world, trying to do all these different things and I need to focus on specific areas and build those areas and i've been told that for the last 15 years frankly and maybe those people were right but i've found some way of growing things efficiently so that they are now able to stand on their two feet without me that's the kind of key thing 
I was to drop dead tomorrow, I'd like to think the PCOMs would continue and would continue to make an impact. I'd like to think the football blacklist would continue to grow and make an impact. So in many ways, the kind of work that I put into those things will help them to continue to stand alone from this point forward, which I'm really, really happy and pleased about. But I'm really interested in scaling up and having a bigger impact and working internationally, not just in this country, to understand challenges elsewhere, but I've got to also understand am I the right person for that? Is the role empowering other people who might not have the connections and doors to push open that I have now at this time in my life? What's going to make the impact? Do I always need to be involved? But for me, I yeah, I just want to keep enjoying what I'm doing. Really looking forward to the challenges that I'll continue to have around all areas of the business that I'm working on. But also probably want to get to a space relatively soon where maybe I'm not working five days a week, maybe I'm doing four and seeing more of my children. I don't think leaders say those things out loud. Men don't say those things out loud. But I think it's a powerful thing. Can you make an impact in four days a week as opposed to five and make a bigger impact in your family? You know, those are things I've been reflecting on recently. It's not in my DNA to do that. So it's a really difficult thought for me to have. How can I not work five days a week and be on my knees come Friday afternoon? It's just what I've been used to for like the last 20 years of my life. But actually, when you break it down, you think about what really matters. I don't think I'm going to be on my deathbed saying, oh my God, I wish I worked a lot more and I worked more hours. I think I'll be on my deathbed saying, I wish I spent more time with my family. That is a humbling thought and it's a challenging thought for me, a really challenging thought for me. But it's one I'm beginning to embrace at the moment and that I'm in a privileged position because money isn't as important as it was 10, 15 years ago to me because well, I was speaking to someone the other day, I didn't expect to be sat in first class. I didn't expect to have people to help me with my diary. I didn't expect to have teams of people working for me. It wasn't part of my trajectory or plan as a young person. So to have it now is the biggest blessing ever. I feel like I won the lottery every time I wake up in the morning and I get to do these things. So it's a, it's a time of real self-reflection at the moment. I don't know if that's because of COVID and perhaps the real world as it was now or the new world. But for me, it's like assessing what is success and what is happiness. And that's, that's quite a deep thought. And I'm just being vulnerable and throwing it out there right now. Sure, I appreciate and I'm, I'm going to share a, a thought that kind of comes to mind, which is you've spent a number of years, a lot of years, pouring out into the work that you do and pouring out into others and making a difference for other people, which has been great. You've made a difference for black footballers, black people in sport. You've elevated a lot of people who were previously unheard of and hidden, and it's absolutely amazing. And for me, for the next chapter especially when you come to a level like yours, is what does pouring into myself look like to ensure that I am around for those I love, those I care about? I can see their growth. I can see their journey. Because you taking that step back, you can work four days a week and you'll be fine because you've got people around you to support you. That's, that's the good leadership part. That's you letting go of certain things. That's you no longer going in that like you say, that Jamaican-Irish <laughs> combination of just going for everything, that's you actually intentionally changing things. But it also shows what's important. And it's another level of representation that we don't get to see of. Because even generally speaking, we get to see a lot of great people doing great things. And then they're, either their personal lives change or not the greatest. And it'd be great to actually see a model where actually there's different iterations in their, in their journey, in their chapters. And it sounds like you're about to step into what that next one looks like for you, which is going to be hard to slow down because when I work with senior leaders, it's always hard for them to slow down. But when they do it, not one of my clients have ever regretted it. They've absolutely loved it. They're like, why didn't I do this sooner? So, And it's not slowing down to not doing anything. It's just slowing down to a different pace and doing something different to just being in the business and doing all those different challenges. So it's still hard. But it's so much more effective and they feel so much more joy and at peace in the last they have. It's scary listening to it back because of where I am right now. Really scary, the thought of, but I need to work and I need to be across absolutely everything. But actually, I think I've got enough self-awareness now to know that what, what's important, how do you make that jump? Maybe in a year's time, I'll have another chat. 
the intention right here and now is there's got to be a better way. I need to give a better version of myself to everybody. I'm challenging myself. Let's see. I appreciate this conversation. Appreciate you sharing your journey. Appreciate you being open and vulnerable. And honestly, inspired by the work that you do, the what you've been creating, what you've kind of brought to life. And obviously, I'm going to share the different the show notes, all the different things that you do so people can tap in more and more <laughs> into the world of, of Leo Main and Refresh Sports. And if people have not seen the film, I think it's still actually available on iPlayer. I know it was a while ago. I'm not sure it still is, but if they haven't, I should tap into it because it's a brilliant, brilliant documentary that you did as well. Um, so, well. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. This is Everyday Leadership. Speak to you next week. <laughs>